What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Khadr, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Khadr. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is my friend, the wonderful architect and activist, Pascal Sablan. And you were talking about the experience of being on the ground floor and having that be something very open. Could you walk our listeners through what the project will be once it's completed? Like, what would they see as they walk through? What are they looking at? What are the major elements that would be encompassed? Sure. So if I'm a Huff resident and I'm walking down mm-hmm. East 66, the first thing I'm going to see is Neighborhood Connections, which is a community engagement group. And so you're seeing their kind of multi-purpose space where you can actually come in and talk about issues or kind of organize the protest if something's going on or have a celebration to celebrate something amazing that's happening in the community. Immediately adjacent is a belt, a green way that connects a larger park that's to the south of the project that actually is having a larger kind of reach into the community on both sides. Mm-hmm. And so kind of being participating in that green space as well. Then as you walk, th- continuing to walk towards Euclid, there's a series of conference rooms and meetings. And you know how we love to meet. And so instead of the, <laughs> instead of private offices, even in a pandemic, <laughs> right? Even if it's private, instead of private offices, you're having these communal gathering spaces, you're seeing mm-hmm. activity. And the purpose of the Cleveland Foundation is to serve the community. So you're seeing people working for you as you walk past. Then you're seeing a green wall and then you're entering the entrance is actually at the corner because we want both of those who are coming down East 66 and those who are walking on Euclid to both feel welcomed and coming mm-hmm. in. A large overhang of the structure and the design volume is over there as well that allows you to kind of come in and be kind of nurtured through. And through that adjacent, it's all landscaping. So again, as you look out the window, you're always kind of looking through glazing. When you come in, there's a welcome center, right? Not a security desk, but a mm-hmm. welcome center where they're being engaged about what you need and where you can find it. Then it is a complete large living room, if you will, that is open for the community to use that has floor to ceiling glazing, exposed timber structure that you're kind of participating in. The land furniture is all designed to feel comfortable, to feel welcomed with outlets everywhere. So you can plug in and create this kind of diversity of seating arrangements, which also means the staff of the Clean Foundation can also come down and meet and enjoy and hang out there and actually have these kind of engagement with the community. And then immediately uh, following is a cafe that is going to even be open in the hours where the foundation isn't open. Oh, okay. So people can still come. 
people can still come. And it opens out into that green landscaping lush space that Merit Chase kind of designed as part of that. And that connects us back to Dunham Tavern, which is another mm-hmm. historical and important kind of figure and feature of the community. And then lastly, we have a wonderful wide corridor that acts as our gallery that creates not solid walls so that those in the community can also feature. Oh, and I forgot to mention... When you first come in and you see the welcome desk, behind the welcome desk is actually a glass wall that helps you see the multi-purpose space. So if there's people dancing or working or working out or whatever programs and activities there, you're actually also able to visually see it as part of that. And so that's really the ground floor that is focused on the community. And then we have elevators and stairs that takes you to the second floor. And in that, that's where most of the office spaces and and equipment and et cetera is for the actual foundation. But there we've also created beautiful double height spaces so that visually it's connected. We also have like an amphitheater kind of zone in the middle that allows for the community of the staff to join and to have meetings and to kind of present to one another and also created a series of fundamental flexible spaces working environments that allows for the clustering of the different departments but also access to the outside which Mm -hmm. is really important so the building is really carved away where we have these large terraces and outdoor spaces that allow us to connect to the greenery but also have greenery as part of the experience as you walk through the project and at the very top is a large kind of conference space, which can also function as an event space. Mm -hmm. So the community can also kind of leverage the building as part of that as well. And so that is the Cleveland Foundation headquarters. That's fantastic. And you mentioned about uh, the structure of it being a timber structure. So I think folks that live in a single family home, that's often timber construction, building of a certain type. Explain what, when we talk in commercial real estate or for, for large institutional buildings like this, When we talk timber structure, what does that mean and why is that so unique and pioneering from what we currently typically do, which is steel or concrete construction? Well, when you think about the embodied energy of some of the the material that we use for construction is one thing. It's also about leveraging the natural kind of components that are really helpful or good and flourish well in a community and also Mm -hmm. kind of pushing more sustainable materials in a method that creates a, a method of kind of giving back. Right. Usually when you have steel construction, you know, you have to, you know, have different kind of coatings and enclosures to mm-hmm. allow for the fireproofing. Whereas with timber, because of the mass of it, it actually becomes part of its own fire protection and adds to it. A lot of our structure, although I think structure is very sexy, uh, usually gets covered up and is covered yeah. by a jip wall and you never really see yeah. it in padded insulation, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's just more material, more things that are being kind of added to enhance the space. Whereas with timber, Mm -hmm. because you're using natural woods and materials and staining it, you're actually able to express it and experience it in the space, which makes the space even volumetrically feel larger, right? Because you're actually able to then not be kind of bedding down from all the kind of things that needs to go through it. It also encourages another level of coordination with MEP and understanding where the best orientations for ducts and other kind of services and lighting and sprinklers in a way where it works well with the design of how it's kind of seen and exposed. And so part of it is when you come into an architecture specifically that usually is timber, really allows you to kind of see a little bit about how pro- how buildings run and how they mm-hmm. work and how they are. So it's a sustainable material. It really cuts the need of a lot of additional materials that are usually mm-hmm. additive for the beautification standpoint. And again, it speaks to this level of warmth and, and this another kind of mission statement kind of beyond it that's really important and also the natural kind of components and that's just kind of speaking to just the ways that architecture can come together this is a three-story building so it's not very large but there's also really great ideas that people are kind of developing 
that allow for timber structures to get taller and taller. And then you're just that much more careful and that much more thoughtful about how those connections kind of come together, where those components are lining up, how they work with the rhythm and syncopation mm-hmm. and, and systems of the windows. All of that kind of comes together and it creates this beautiful design and a beautiful space. So the neighborhood where the Cleveland Foundation is located is one that is subject to a land trust, which is a really big deal. Tell us more about that and what makes that unique. Right. So the clients or the the community, the Huff community actually has a great deal of investments in the community land trust, which allows for the community members to actually get some of that financial justice of the enhancements of the town, right? And so as more values kind of bringing coming to the community, because of this, they actually have the ability and the funds to then activate, locate sites that they want and able to hold to it and build and develop what they need and actually create a lot of that funding and financial benefits of development actually come back to the actual community and they be in charge of what kind of developments are happening in their spaces. So they're able to use that funding to identify really critical and key components and areas and to help support the beautification of some of the projects, but also that the value is within there. So somebody can't just kind of come in and take them out, that they actually own some of that land and that property that's part of that experience and having that financial funding to allow them to make those moves accordingly. That's excellent. And is that something that you have seen in other places across the country? Is this relatively unique? For me, it's relatively unique. And I Mm -hmm. I think it's something that the Cleveland Foundation brought to the community as well. So before they announced officially, publicly that they were coming into this community, they first wanted to engage the community to let them know first so that they could create that infrastructure to ensure that they were in a position to hold that kind of power. And then once they were set in that, then they were able to kind of publicly speak. So again, this is like a powerful and amazing opportunity Mm -hmm. where the client itself was an advocate for the community that they are engaging with and trying to do that in a way that empowered the local community as much as possible. Excellent. So you had mentioned earlier that uh, you work for David Ajay and his approach to how advocacy is perceived relative to the practice of design is very different than many other firms. Could you talk about that first interaction with David Ajay and how you became convinced that you wanted to work for a firm like David Ajay's? So sure. Actually, you know, I was absolutely struggling in 2020. It was a very rough year for me for many reasons, mm-hmm. including COVID, but also just, you know, seeing what was happening in the world. I started to see a few shifts in me as well. Uh, less code switching in terms of my language, um, more authentic in terms of where I'm at and how I'm feeling. Could you explain what code switching means for anyone that may not be aware? Sure. So typically in a professional setting, I would be very particular about the vernacular that I would use um, when presenting to a client or when talking to consultants where I couldn't hold my natural language that I felt I had mm-hmm. to kind of have a little bit more of a polished kind of um, text and language and words that I use that we call that as code switching. Right. And so I would speak a little bit more in my natural vernacular mm-hmm. where I didn't need to feel like I had to pull my culture out to be professional. Right. And let's say, you know, with coming back from Memorial Weekend and, you know, it's like, oh, how was your weekend? Oh, I'm so bummed I didn't get to barbecue. And I'm like, oh, I'm really still mortified of the brutal murder of George Floyd. Right. Like I stopped kind of placating and smiling to maintain other people's um, comfort Mm -hmm. and just spoke to my discomfort a little bit more and a, a bit more authentically. In the beginning, I was very much about keeping my kid quiet during my Zoom calls and like acting like it's a perfect kind of situation on my end, you know, and then towards kind of as time went by, like there would be moments where my son's going to come over and want to show me something. And that's just kind of part of 
the experience of where I am and, and who I am as a mom. And so uh, that was very difficult. 2020 was very difficult, but it also allowed me to stay a little bit more authentically in who I am in that capacity. And so when speaking to David, really it talked about, you know, I, I actually said, I don't know that you would want me to join your team because I just was elected president of NOMA and I'll have a really strong responsibility once I hold that position and I want to hold that position well. And he was like, yeah, that's why we want you. Because if you're a leader <laughs> of a natural organization, that means you're a leader. You know how to network. That means you understand how to inspire. You understand how to move people forward. That means you're very organized. That means you're very vested. That means you have a network that we can kind of build together. And that blew my mind, to be quite honest, because I really it had been seen as such a terrible thing previously that I was really shocked by it. And then when I started speaking to the other leadership of the office, they said, Pascal, we understand that you come in with a sense of authority and ownership mm -hmm. and expertise in this. And we would look for you to kind of guide us, but we do not look for you to hold this weight alone. We are all yes going to be dismantling this injustice together. And the debates that we'll be having is how to best do it, not if it actually exists. And that, man, that was a whole mind-blowing experience because I had spent so much of my time saying, we need equity. And they're like, no, 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 we're fine. And it's like, we are not fine. And so to have that was kind of critical. And I, I must say, my first day at work where I called my mom and said I found home is when I opened the kind of timesheet software. Yep. And there are some baseline tasks that are always in your timesheet. And one of them was advocacy. Wait, really? Yes. There is an every timesheet, there's an advocacy bar. So it is not just me enforcing it or imposing it. I have walked into a, an office, a studio, a global studio who sees advocacy as part of your job. Holy smokes, this like amazing. I literally called my mom and was like, this is it, I've made it. This is exciting because not only am I working on incredible projects globally and locally, but just everywhere, but also the office just gets it. They already got it. I'm learning from them as much as they're learning from me. And I had mm -hmm. never seen anything like that before. And I, when I tell my peers, they were also equally as shocked and impressed by that infrastructure that was already there. So I'm really glad that you said that. So for any listeners, uh, you can go to adj.com slash contact slash careers to join this amazing firm. They have open positions in Accra, London, and New York. And no, they did not ask me to say this. So uh, they just basically what she described is mind blasting. So go apply for a job. So. Absolutely. Please join us. So you mentioned earlier the, the things that you've created, the products that you've helped set a sale are the uh, Great Diverse Designers Library, the Say It Loud exhibit series, and Say It With Media. Could you describe again in like a, in a description of what each of them are and how you decided that you wanted to do the stuff rather than wait somebody for somebody else to do it? You know, that's a great question because... You know, as I talked about earlier about that collective responsibility and just being involved in these different organizations, that actually helps me understand the complexity of the issue of injustice that we were working towards, right? I also started to understand who are the 
agents of change and who were the agents of opposition in a lot of this and just kind of understand a little bit more about the nuances of what we're challenged against. And through that work, you know, I, I want to say I did advocacy in terms of volunteering for nine years before mm -hmm. I started Beyond the Built Environment. And really it's because I was seeing a lot of the programming. I was seeing the stuff that we're working on and it's all critical and important. But I saw this small gap where we were so focused on dismantling injustices and getting those obstacles and those shackles off of the chains and, and, and holding people back that I was like, can we celebrate just a little bit? Right. And so that's why I really wanted to start with all these say aloud exhibitions, which was about celebrating the work of women in BIPOC designers and about elevating them in that capacity. And because I had participated in all these various organizations for those many years, I instantly had a network of people who were ready to submit and to support and to also help amplify the call for content and so on and so forth. And so Say It Loud is an exhibition that is a traveling activation. And what I mean by that is every new location we have a Say It Loud we're elevating mm -hmm. women and BIPOC designers of that location. So Say It Loud New York mm -hmm. is going to be very different from Say It Loud Virginia. You know, you're going to have the same components in terms of seeing people's faces and their work and video testimonials about their experiences. But we're pulling that out. And what's great about this is to say it's not just one. It can't. It's not just one great woman architect right now. It's not going to be just one black architect. It's that it's a collective work that takes a lot of people to get projects done. And so by pulling these out are really Important because then we have events and programming that activates around these exhibitions that shows the community these are the faces and the names and the people who are actually designing and building your space. They not only require your praise and your love and your joy, but also if you are inspired or interested, they're right here. They're not some phantom great architect that has died a thousand years ago and <laughs> you'll never reach the level of amazingness as they have. Like imagine saying, wow, I walk into this exhibition. I really like this home. Oh, who designed it? Wow. Mm -hmm. Let me look them up. Their office is Midtown. Maybe I can go and intern there. Maybe I can go see them lecture one time. Maybe I can track their website and see what products they're building. They create this level of accessibility that's really powerful and important. So say it loud, we've done 26 exhibitions so far with another six uh, planned for next year. And with each exhibition, we create the Great Diverse Designers Library, which we pull all that content. So currently mm -hmm. we have 669 women in BIPOC designers on that website. It is constantly growing. I think last year around this time, we were around 300 to like 290 something. So it's really growing exponentially. And we're having exhibitions, not just in this United States, but also in Australia and in other parts of the world, which has been really powerful and exciting to see and in the Caribbean. So really it's important. And I sometimes people challenge me and say, well, why do you need to do a say aloud Haiti, for instance? They're all, mm -hmm. they're all black. And I'm like, yeah, just because the community is black doesn't necessarily mean that they are in charge or have authority in the built uh... environment, right? Because it's a lot of out people coming in and building their built environment, bringing typologies and working structures and resources that are not native or take advantage of the natural kind of components of an island. So you can't always assume just because of communities of color that they are in charge of their built environment and their work still needs to be elevated and proclaimed as great so that yes. we can learn from them no matter where we are in the world. So that's Say It Loud. And then, so Say It Loud then fundamentally created mm -hmm. the Great Diverse Designers Library. And now you all are versed in terms of why the name is the Great Diverse Designers Library and ultimately creating the book 
that starts to pull through and get the best of the best of those who are featured. We also have something called uh, See It Loud. See It Loud is an augmented reality app in camp that functions kind of similar to Pokemon Go, if you will, where you walk and it says, here's a project near you that's designed by a woman and person of color. You get closer, you get to see their headshots and their names. And actually, you can actually draw art inspired by what you see, capture it on your mobile device and see it on the building at one-to-one scale. And so the idea, again, is leveraging all the content from the Say Aloud exhibitions, because now I know all these projects in neighborhoods near you that has all these projects and making it a way that's a little bit more accessible. And so that program is really geared towards high school, preteens and teens, most likely to have a device, but also planting the seed of them seeing architecture, not just from like aerial looking down, but Mm -hmm. as a pedestrian and having their art be superimposed on the building is really powerful. And so I'm collaborating with an organization called Nomtech out in Poland to create that technology because apparently augmented reality wants to do really small things close to you. And what I'm pushing is to do really big things far away. And so I'm really kind of challenging the way that technology is used in creating that. You have the Say It With Media, which is the media uh, campaign about getting digital prints and broadcast to really hold accountable to really elevating our stories and our identity and our work. Mm-hmm. And then you have Learn Out Loud, which is a children's pop-up book, which again, taking advantage of all the content from the Say Aloud exhibitions and creating a book that is geared for small children that has caricatures of what the architects and designers look like and 3D pop-ups of their projects with the words I can too embedded so that the students kind of practice the words I can too, self-affirmations that they too can be a great architect, they too can change the world so that when a professor makes them stand up and tell them that they're not good enough, they already understand how absurd that that would be at the same time. So between my learn out loud children's pop-up book, my see it loud augmented reality, my say it loud, you know, exhibitions, it's really trying to support the full pipeline, but leveraging the content from one another to make it happen. That is the best response I could ever imagine. So for anyone that wants to learn more about these amazing initiatives, go to beyond the built dot com beyond the built dot com so i'm going to take a break here to let our listeners know that next month we'll be having lincoln property companies sam pepper on the show sam is a senior project manager in the los angeles office of this national real estate development company that's playing a very large role in the building boom that's happening across the Sunbelt. So make sure to subscribe to the podcast at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com so you don't miss a single episode this season. So uh, Michelle Wu is the mayor-elect of Boston, and in her acceptance speech, uh, she mentioned that her son asked her if boys can be mayors too, after seeing both Wu and her opponent, uh, who was also a woman. Taking that idea, what ways or what thoughts or what ideas do you have to deliver all this amazing content, all this, these amazing resources to, for example, a head of a public school board, like New York City's this massive school board, or an elected official like a city council member or a mayor? What ways or thoughts would you like to interact with elected and appointed officials to advance these really important issues? Really, it's about knowing your audience mm-hmm. and about moving the mission forward. And I've been really about leveraging the built environment in a way that is providing justice because mm-hmm. it can and has been used in the past to harm. So how can we make it heal? And so usually when I'm meeting with the government officials or planning boards, it's about let's ground this conversation in the mission first. Mm-hmm. 
because if we're not aligned there, then really there's no point in wasting anybody else's time. Mm-hmm. Point blank period, right? And then so now if we are on a mission alignment, then then we can debate all sorts of ways of ways that you want to execute. And me being an architect is a problem solver, right? Mm-hmm. I get it done. I'm organized. I understand. I synthesize complex information. I know how to take an idea from my head and make it come to fruition. Yes. And so I'm also looking for their offices to be very collaborative in that effort as well. But I'm very rigorous and I'm very unapologetic about the mission. And I would say part of the largest kind of conversations that I've been having here in New York is asking, well, in general, I've been asking the profession to step away from designing jails, prisons, and places of detention. As a country, we have way more than we need. We need to disassociate this idea that safety is the equivalent of having black and brown bodies in cages mm-hmm. and understanding that it is part of a modern day slavery economy and that people are being worked or kind of placed in these spaces to create product so that they can be sold at small rates within that having to be uh, compensated for that effort. So really just understanding what that means in terms of our role. Like when we talk about the justice system in the country, we're not just kind of stepping back and say we should do better. It's also understanding and recognizing our role in that system and trying to dismantle it as well. And so specifically in New York, we have this whole Rikers Island situation, which is a completely unjust and terrible, torturous space where the current administration is refusing to improve because they want to push borough-based jails instead. And the justice in it is that now you don't have to travel so far to go see your loved ones. But we're not being catalytic and or innovative in terms of the architecture and design structures of how we're making this. We're just kind of multiplying the ridiculousness of what was terrible and just now putting it in communities. And what we need to be very careful about understanding is that a lot of private prisons has a occupancy requirement of either 80% (laughs) to 100% occupancy rates. And so when a product like that is being put online, they also hire lobbyists to start to turn infractions and things that people have done that used to be fines into minimum days in prison, right? Because the intent is to keep the beds full as much as possible. So the architecture that we're building is literally extracting bodies out of their communities and putting it in a space to confer that that injustice. And so a lot of the discussions that I've been having is just kind of understanding what's your position on this? And some are ready to talk about it and some are not. Some are in a mm-hmm. different position than I am. And so I'm not interested in hanging out with politicians unless they are in alignment with me in, in terms of this. And I'm very vocal about it. And when I do my public speaking, irregardless of where in the world I'm speaking at, I still speak to this and truly do believe that we can, as a profession, lean into creating new typologies centered around restorative justice. That mm-hmm. we do not need to kind of behold into these typologies that was literally designed to facilitate racism, sexism, and oppression, and think that that is the only catalog and tool that we can use to find justice. We can create and be innovative in the way that we think about things and talk about mental health and capacities within there and really start to be honest about the economy of having people be in prisons and jails. So I say all this to say, not all politicians love me and that's okay, but I think that what I'm talking to and what I'm working towards is for justice for people that really is you know, my neighbors and my loved ones Mm -hmm. and my family and myself in some cases, right? I think in 2020, the revelation that I had been operating in a sense of privilege became very apparent to me. Like, yes, I'm Black, but I'm I'm highly educated. I have a profession. You know, I don't really interact with the police. I'm safe. And then Breonna Taylor was completely murdered in her house. Like, it was like, oh, okay, yeah, no, I'm not safe. And so my five-year-old Black son is not safe. My, you know, 
minority husband is not safe. Everyone that I love who is my family are not safe. And so not just safe from being harmed by the police, but also being caged by the police, right? And so really being mindful of that. And I think you can have great policing and accountability mm-hmm. about justice at the same time. And I think that that's done through a way, and as an architect, in a way that we can do that through the built environment, in a way that shows a new typology and fights for justice in that way. I think that there is a new breed of people in our industry that speak very differently than this idea that architects essentially are the lapdogs of the rich and the powerful. And I think that's no more. So good riddance to that old idea. And I want to talk a little bit more about, you had mentioned that uh, you have a son, so you're a mother. And what about our industry makes it challenging to be a mother and a very successful architect at the same time? You know, it's interesting because people would kind of often challenge me and say, well, why don't you just focus on BIPOC? Why do you also focus on women as well? Right. And I said, because the injustices and obstacles that I have to fight as a person of color, it's different than what I have to follow or work through as a woman. But best to believe there is definitely infrastructure of racism and sexism there as well. And they're yielding similar results in terms of a lack of us in the profession, specifically at higher ranking, high levels in the profession. And when you start taking a look at Rosa Shang's kind of missing 32 percent kind of reports where she's keeping track of women in the profession and their salaries and their titles and how they're able to kind of be successful in it, you start to see that there's a huge disparity that we come out of school almost 50-50 and pretty quickly the women's trajectory of how they're able to elevate in a firm is very minimal. And when you take a look at the percentages of women who are married, have children at partner principal level, the number is abysmal. It's insane. Mm -hmm. And so For a long time, I didn't even understand the challenges that moms were having up until I became pregnant and became a mom. And a firm that I thought was super supportive and amazing and had so many things right really was not healthy for me coming back. And was the one time in my career where I really thought that I shouldn't be an architect because it was impossible for me to be both. And so really just understanding that there's an inflexibility of schedule that is Mm -hmm. unrealistic and unfair. This idea that parenthood is a mom thing and not a co-parent thing is Mm. also really old, antiquated, that is completely out of sync with the realities of it. And so for the partners in these relationships who are not the birthing parent per se, you should also be fighting for the ability to be home with your child, with your spouse to support through that process and that healing process as well. I also saw how the intensity of the schedules where, you know, there was a not imbalance, but this this kind of push for me to go home at six o'clock every day, but not my male counterpart who also just had a kid at home. Right. And so there's like a discrepancy there that wasn't quite fair. And then, you know, just this idea that I couldn't function. I mean, after having a baby, I'm not going to lie, I did, I was not able to focus as well as I used to. I needed time to heal and repair. And I felt like I was just wasn't given that kind of opportunity to do so. And so I would say there's a lot of challenges. And, and even the built environment itself, like when I was traveling with my lectures and my board positions that are national that required me to travel a lot, just finding spaces for me to pump to do that was challenging. So every time I see like a mom pod in these airports, that is like amazing because I did not have that. And it, you know, imagine where you could possibly whip your stuff out to do this in traveling was also like a big challenge. So I think not just the profession 
in terms of how we're paid, the trajectory of t- talent, what products mm-hmm. we're getting, et cetera, but also how the built environment is not designed for us or spaces that are not designed for us as well is also part of the challenge. And understanding even the proportions of sh- chairs, of doorknobs, the heights of cabinets, the temperatures that is the baseline for spaces are mm-hmm. all set to the proportions and the comfort of a man. Right. And so now y'all in three piece suits, you know, hot, but I'm in a dress and I'm cold, which is why you see all the women in your office with sweaters and bubble jackets and scarves on at their desk. Right. And so just kind of understanding that challenging even the standards that we're designing to and saying, whoa, if I'm going to create a space for women. Right. What does that mean? What height does the doorknob need to be so that it's available for them? Uh, where yes. does the cabin need to be so that they're not getting step stools to get up to get like basic things, right? So there's just kind of thinking about those things and challenging to that capacity is really important and critical. So I would say, again, it's really important to understand that you might not be directly experiencing an injustice. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's not absolutely occurring. And so mm-hmm. it's not about our comparing the weight of your cross, right? Like I often hear, oh, you think you have it bad as a black person. You just see what I have to do as a woman or listen, we're all carrying crosses. They're all ridiculous. And what we need to do is lighten each other's loads and not just kind of say your value of your cross is more or less than mine because of the weight. You don't know (laughs) because you're not in everybody's shoes. And then also that also means you don't need to be a leader in all of these initiatives, but important to identify all these different programs and leaderships that are fighting to dismantle those injustices in those various platforms and support them how you can in that process as well. Mm -hmm. So it's not this idea that it's one or the other. It's, it's everyone. It's everyone. It's everyone. So to this next generation of designers and developers and other professionals in our industry, how do you hope that they approach their careers in perhaps a way that was different than myself or yourself approached our careers? That's a good one. And I think part of it is when I was in school, I realized now that my classmates were, are my network. And so knowing that it's important that when we're in school, we're actually building that relationship that your peers in class you all are graduating together. You all were going mm-hmm. into different firms. Some of you going to developers, some of you going to engineering offices. Like it just keeps expanding. And as you pr- get promoted, they get promoted too. So really understanding that your peers and your class is your network that you want to start building off of and comes having that collaborative relationship there. So being the best version of yourself in school is also really important because it sets the tone of how people think about you professionally moving forward. I'll also say it's about not prioritizing the person who's cutting the check but it's also everybody impacted by your work, right? And that will make sure that people create value in understanding the community's role and identity and culture and that be part of your investigation, right? Mm -hmm. When you go to take site photos, don't just take site photos, talk to people walking by and say, hey, are you part of this community? Like, what would you like to see here? And just give them a moment to talk about it and, and take that as part of your research. It's not just about Googling statistics and demographics and median salaries. It's about mm-hmm. taking stock and seeing value in the people who are impacted by your work. And a person walking by your building is as important to understand their point of view as a person who's paying you to build the building as well, I think is really powerful and important. And then lastly, I would say that there are so many resources and models of ways that you can get support that 
wasn't absolutely evident when I was in school or mm-hmm. younger that I felt like some of the injustices that I had to deal with, I just had to deal with them and not realizing that I could hold a professor accountable for saying some crazy stuff, that I could mm-hmm. go to my dean and say that, and that if they don't see the injustice in it, then I can go to AIA, I can go to NOMA, I can leverage social media, I can do all these things as a way of kind of moving the burden of this injustice off of my shoulders to carry mm-hmm. alone but that it really should be put on the responsibility of the person who perpetuated it and push for policies to ensure that it doesn't happen to somebody else moving forward. That is excellent. So I want to say thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast, Pascal. The Great American Building Podcast. <laughs> the Great American Building Podcast with the great Pascal Sablon. <laughs> I love it. So listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this great podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience and follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team at Michael Graves and Redist, and many of our spectacular guests, just like Pascal, on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field, at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Pascal and I have made donations to Beyond the Built Environment, which engages the community to advocate for diverse and equitable environments. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. And make sure to follow them on Instagram at Beyond the Built. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.